Nearly 40 years ago, a young L.A. Times journalist named Edwin Chen got this wild lead, a story that seemed too bizarre to be true. It, it just had all the ingredients. It had sex, it had fame, it had kind of a guy with a way-out-there idea. It was one of those once-in-a-lifetime tips that reporters dream about getting. I went to the editors and I said, you guys are not going to believe this, what I'm working on. And they couldn't believe it. They laughed and said, that can't be real. Chen's bosses at the LA Times told him to investigate the story he stumbled upon. So he drove 30 miles from his office in San Diego to the gates of a lush 10-acre estate. He cruised down a long driveway, flanked by well-manicured lawns, to a grand home with an American flag flying high in front. Chen was greeted by the estate's owner, a fabulously wealthy industrialist. He looked like he could fit right in with the parents on Leave it to Beaver. Dress shirt with a tie on, very neatly dressed, hair combed, just very proper and dignified. Chen entered the estate house and sat in an airy family room across from this man, Robert K. Graham. They started talking about what brought Chen there in the first place. Graham's bold vision, an experiment that would remake humanity as we know it. Right away, I could tell he was a real believer. The evidence Chen needed to confirm his tip was right here on this estate. So after chatting for a bit, Chen and Graham stepped back outside and walked down a grassy hill. And there was like a concrete bunker, a small one, maybe the size of like a bathroom in a house. And you stepped down, it was concrete, and then there was a heavy, heavy door. I think it was like a steel door. It almost was like one of those bank vaults. Graham took Chen underground into this small bunker. There was a a steel container, and he opened it, and, you know, there was the vapors from the dry ice coming out. And as I remember, he had these heavy gloves on for some reason, and then he just showed me these uh, vials. Inside the vials was the key to Graham's plan to change the world. Chen couldn't believe his eyes. The story was true. When he finished his interview, he hopped in his car and hit the road. I was so excited, I had to restrain myself from speeding right down the freeway trying to get back to the office. There are times when you know you're on one hell of a story and there's the adrenaline is hard to describe. It doesn't happen very often. Chen was about to make global headlines and shock the world with the details of what was going on inside that bunker. He was about to reveal a selective breeding experiment that was designed to overhaul natural selection. It was really bizarre. And the fact that it involved some of the world's smartest leading scientists, all Nobel laureates. You know, like in my mind, I was going like, what the? Man, I've got a one hell of a story here. From Sony Music Entertainment and Three Uncanny Four Productions, this is Biohacked Family Secrets. I'm your host, T.J. Raphael. Today, the improbable tale of Robert Graham and his quest to transform the human race, one genius at a time. How a plan so seemingly out there wound up revolutionizing the baby business. That's next. 
our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Robert Clark Graham was born in 1906 in a picturesque Michigan town called Harbor Springs. The community has always been something of a summer haven for wealthy Midwesterners, complete with mansions on the waterfront and grand private country clubs. The folks who were making their fortunes in the Detroit auto industry in particular often vacationed up in Harbor Springs. Journalist David Plotz, who wrote a book called The Genius Factory, about Graham and his experiment, says old money dominated Harbor Springs each summer. And Robert Graham was the son of the town dentist, and he caddied at the local country club. In Harbor Springs, Graham waited on the barons of his time, and those experiences gripped him. He got a chance to meet the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Fords and princes and potentates who came through, and he was very impressed by them. These interactions shaped Graham's worldview and his eventual experiment in profound ways. Graham wanted to rise above his Michigan life. He really thought the way to be was to be rich. And the way you get rich is by being an inventor and a business person. Over the years, Graham kept an eye out for opportunities that would catapult him into the upper echelons. And when he was in his 30s, his moment struck. Graham was working as an optometrist for a major eyeglass company. And he saw this recurring problem. Lenses. See, it was the 1940s. And back then, lenses were made from actual glass. They were delicate, expensive to replace, and not the best thing to get in your eye if they shattered. Graham thought he could fix all that. So he started his own company and changed the way people see. By inventing shatterproof plastic eyeglasses. This was a huge innovation. Anyone who wears glasses with plastic lenses has Robert Graham to thank. Oh, and if you wear contact lenses, you can thank him again. He helped develop those too. Graham was on his way to becoming just like the rich and brilliant men he admired as a kid, but he was still unsettled about the world around him. He kept thinking back to his childhood and this man who really made an impression on him. He spoke about him in an interview in the 1990s. He was not only tall and handsome and rich and famous, but he was very generous and he was very inventive. And yet this... this Outstanding man died childless. The passing of this incredible, childless man devastated Graham. To him, it wasn't merely the loss of one person, but the loss of future generations of great men. I felt that God has planted some of his best seed in our little town, and it had died out. Graham could have settled with life as a groundbreaking inventor, but it wasn't enough for him. He wanted to change the world, 
and Graham became obsessed. With the idea that there was a, an intellectual elite who were creating the good in the world. They were the engineers and the scientists and the inventors and the business people, and they were creating something of value in the world, and that the vast majority of us were morons, that we were intellectually deficient, we were lazy, and most worryingly of all for Graham, we were having too many children. And unless we did something to reverse it, the world would end in idiocracy. When Graham looked around, he saw a world in crisis. He thought human intelligence was in decline and modern society was doomed. Graham thought that the only way to remedy this was to encourage the intellectual elite to have more kids. In 1970, Graham published his concerns and solutions in a manifesto called The Future of Man. This probably sounds like eugenics, and that's because it is. But Graham wasn't some outlier of his time. Eugenics, this idea that you could breed superior people, had been a huge, huge movement in the United States and the rest of the world during the late 19th and early 20th century. In 1910, biologist Charles Davenport opened the Eugenics Record Office at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island. It was funded by America's wealthy elite, including the Rockefeller and Carnegie families, and compiled 750,000 records on Americans they viewed as genetically inferior. Workers from the lab went into poor neighborhoods in New York and New Jersey to track disabilities and, quote, undesirable traits. They'd measure people's heads and create systems to quantify skin color. Eugenicists convinced lawmakers in the United States to pass legislation to stop so-called mental defectives from marrying. State-sanctioned sterilization campaigns took off, and Ivy League professors at Harvard, Columbia, Cornell, and Brown taught eugenics. By the late 1920s, at least 20,000 college students were taking courses in eugenics every year. But then Nazism and the genocidal eugenic policies of Adolf Hitler really damaged the credibility of this idea that, oh, it's just a matter of uh, breeding better people because people realized, oh, it's not just a matter of breeding better people. It's like getting rid of the worst among us and deciding who should die. And that's not, no one really thought that was a great idea. After the atrocities of World War II, eugenics faded from polite society, at least for a little while. If you have been exposed to radioactive dust, wash the exposed areas. Pay particular attention to your hair. Get all the dirt from under your fingernails. In the 1950s and 60s, people across the globe remained terrified at the prospect of nuclear conflict even if they weren't in blast zones. The idea that toxic radiation would linger and cause carnage on the human body was horrifying. There is this notion that the huge amount of radiation that's being unleashed in atomic weapons testing in particular was putting the genetic vitality of the world at risk and that the risk of mutations and of severely damaging the human genome from all this 
uh, ambient radiation was significant. This was a key area of interest for scientist Herman Muller, the founder of the field of radiation genetics. Muller was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1946 for discovering how radiation mutated the DNA of fruit flies. And anyone who's ever had to sit in a biology class and deal with fruit flies owes a thank you to Herman Muller. By the 1950s, Muller's work had become widely known. He launched a very public campaign to warn the masses that nuclear radiation could cause serious genetic mutations that would permeate through society for decades to come. But his interest in genetics didn't stop with fruit flies or nuclear testing. Muller also publicly campaigned for human eugenics because he thought modern society had thrown a wrench in natural selection. Robert Graham was familiar with his work and admired his ideas. So he reached out to Muller and asked him to write an introduction to his book, The Future of Man. But it turns out, Muller wasn't a huge fan of Graham's manuscript, though he was intrigued by his ideas. The two men met to discuss their visions of humanity and a passion they both shared, starting a genius sperm bank. Muller and Graham, sort of from different directions, had come up with the idea that humanity was under threat and that we were under threat because the genome was under threat. Graham thought it was under threat because too many stupid people were having children. Muller thought it was under threat because radiation threatened it. Neither of them was really right, but they teamed up and they formed this idea that what the United States needed was a repository for the great sperm of the world. And they came up with a title, The Repository for Germinal Choice. The Repository for Germinal Choice. This genius sperm bank. That is what Edwin Chen saw in the bunker on Graham's property back in 1980. But what Chen didn't know while he was looking at vapors and vials was what his reporting would reveal. I don't think any other story I've ever done to this day in 30-some years in journalism got this strong a response. That's next. Stay with us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. As Robert Graham and Herman Muller grew closer, they formed a plan and laid out their vision for the repository. They would store the semen 
of the great men of the age and dole that out to women who so that they could have genetically undamaged children who would also be great uh, engineers and scientists. Graham and Muller were taken seriously. They even arranged meetings with Caltech, the renowned science and engineering school, and proposed housing the repository there. The two men worked for years to get the sperm bank up and running. But the winds of change were coming to America. The culture is starting to change. The free speech movement in Berkeley, and then obviously the civil rights movement, the opposition to the Vietnam War, the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, the native rights movements, all are rising up. And with it is enormous skepticism of these elite institutions and this kind of best and brightest mentality. The idea that we need to breed an intellectual elite by getting a bunch of white scientists to donate sperm and white geniuses to donate sperm becomes an incredibly, I mean, beyond unfashionable, just a loathsome, reprehensible idea to people. Muller saw the writing on the wall, and in 1965, he basically told Graham, we got to pump the brakes on this thing. But two years after they shelved the idea, Herman Muller died. That could have been it for Graham, but he didn't give up. Without Muller's opposition, Graham officially established the repository in 1971. But he waited to get it up and running. Graham focused his attention back on his eyeglass company, Armorlite. By then, it had grown into a giant business, and it was a behemoth when he sold it in 1978. And he made $100 million back when $100 million was real money. After the sale, Graham was fabulously wealthy. And with no business to run, he finally had some time to realize the repository. But he had a problem. He needed sperm donors, and not just any donors. But how do you make sure you're really getting the best and brightest? The truest measure of achievement in the world, of of enormous achievement in the world, is the Nobel Prize. So I'm going to create a sperm bank where I'm going to gather the genetic material of the world's greatest scientists. He wasn't interested in, like, peace Nobelists or literature Nobelists, only the scientific Nobelists. And I'm going to create a sperm bank with it. In the late 1970s, Graham started writing letters to a bunch of Nobel Prize winners in California. He told them about his plan to change the world and made appeals to get their genetic material. Graham was making strides, and by 1980, the bank was up and running. And it wasn't long before the press got wind of his operation. L.A. Times reporter Edwin Chen, who we heard from earlier, had stumbled upon this story by accident while he was working on a piece about breeding endangered animals at the San Diego Zoo. The zoologist he was interviewing mentioned offhand that some wealthy industrialist had started a genius sperm bank. Chen jotted down the tip in his notebook, and when he got back to his office, he decided to investigate this wild story. I began calling a few commercial sperm banks in Southern California Many didn't know anything about it. Chen had hit a wall, but then he got another lead. He found an ad for the repository in a newsletter for members of Mensa, the largest and oldest high IQ society in the world. Graham was trying to court smart women from Mensa who could carry the children of Nobel Prize winners. 
When I saw that Mansa bulletin, I said, well, it's true. I better hustle and get this in print. But he couldn't publish the story with just the info from Mensa. He also needed to fact check that Nobelists were actually donating to the bank. So he hit the phones. I began uh, calling these scientists. And, and many said they knew nothing about it. Others said they were contacted. They thought it was a lunatic idea and just threw the, I guess, letter away. Robert Graham might have had a sperm bank, but Chen couldn't find any evidence that it was filled with geniuses. And without confirmation, it seemed that Robert Graham was a phony and the LA Times wouldn't go to print with the story. But Chen didn't give up. He made another call to a Nobel Prize winner. And that Nobelist, well, he said yes. Confirming that he was a part of this and why he did it. Chen proved that a Nobel sperm bank really did exist. But there was one more step Chen needed to take before going to print. He had to see things for himself. So that's when he paid a visit to Robert Graham and saw the underground bunker where he was storing sperm. Right away, I could tell he was a real believer. All the pieces came together. Chen's article on the repository ran on the front page of the LA Times on February 29th, 1980. And his initial hunch was right. This was a bombshell story. News of the sperm bank traveled far and wide, and Chen was bombarded with calls from journalists all over the world. After a call, I would hang up, and almost before I took my hand off the cradle of the phone, it rang again. It went like that for hours and hours, almost nonstop. I don't think any other story I've ever done to this day in 30-some years in journalism got this strong a response. The repository gained a lot of attention, but for all the wrong reasons. And that's because the Nobelist who had confirmed Chen's story, you said he was donating his sperm to the repository, was William Shockley. And the fact that Shockley, this American villain, was associated with this repository for journal choice, took it from being a kind of curiosity, a little bit of a joke, to being a, a threat. That's next, after the break. After Edwin Chen's article hit newsstands, Americans were shocked and appalled to find out that William Shockley was involved. William Shockley is one of the most enthralling figures of the 20th century in America. Truly, truly enthralling. I would argue maybe one of the most important figures in 20th century America. The reason you can hear this old-timey music, or my voice at all, is because of William Shockley. In the 1940s, Shockley and his team invented something major one of the building blocks of all modern electronics, the transistor. These tiny transistors are destined to play a big part in our electronic age. They will make possible smaller, more compact electronic devices that will need less maintenance and have a longer life. This invention of the transistor is, sets the world afire. It becomes the foundation of the computer age. Everything that we know, every bit of microprocessor, of the chips that would come, of silicon chips, comes out of this invention that Shockley makes. 
1956, the transistor was being manufactured all over the world. And Shockley and two of his subordinates won a Nobel Prize for the invention. He fundamentally gets that this is going to miniaturize everything, and it's going to make this power of human computing and the capacity of human computing and network computing uh, possible. And he goes and he founds the first company in Silicon Valley, effectively. He brings the silicon to Silicon Valley. Shockley left Bell Labs in 1955 and set up shop in Palo Alto. He paid handsomely. He hired scientists, not businessmen. And he prioritized creativity over routine. Sounds familiar, right? But unlike modern Silicon Valley giants, Shockley's business... is a disaster, because Shockley's a terrible, terrible leader and manager. Shockley was ruthless, brutal, and mean. His employees hated him. And by 1957, eight of his top scientists quit. But these great minds who walked out on Shockley went on to lay the foundation for Silicon Valley. They founded and invested in companies that ushered in the tech revolution. Probably if you add it up, like they're, they're responsible, you know, in some fashion for, you know, a quarter of the U.S. economy. Like so much of what has come out of the world comes out of these first eight people who worked at Shockley Semiconductor. One of Shockley's top employees went on to found the legendary VC firm Kleiner Perkins, which put seed funding into companies like Amazon and Google. Another pair of Shockley employees? They established Intel. So how does William Shockley, who helped pave the way for every single device, computer, GPS, and cell phone, get mixed up in a genius sperm bank? Shockley has, is this great inventor, he's this great visionary, but he himself is, is left kind of in the dust when all these people go off. And he begins to develop these very retrograde ideas, appalling ideas about race and IQ. After his business fails, Shockley becomes one of the most notable public racists of the late 20th century. Back in the 70s, a man named Dr. William Shockley, a noted scientist, embarked upon the mission of proving to the world that black people are genetically inferior, without, I might add, the benefit of any formal background in genetics. That was PBS journalist Tony Brown back in 1989. Brown had spoken to Shockley about his views years earlier. My research leads me inescapably to the opinion that the major cause of the American Negro's intellectual and social deficits is hereditary and racially genetic in origin, and thus not remediable to a major degree by practical improvements in environment. Being a Nobel Prize winner, Shockley was able to secure a huge platform to argue that Black Americans and other people of color were intellectually inferior to whites and that the welfare system should be replaced with a, quote, voluntary sterilization bonus plan, which would pay low-IQ people, and Black Americans in particular, to undergo sterilization. Shockley goes from being in the early 1960s a giant in American life, a true hero in American life, to being a figure of loathsomeness. And he also then becomes the only public donor to the repository for Germinal Choice. As odd as this sounds, with Shockley on board, Graham did get a certain degree of credibility. Chen's reporting and Shockley's confirmation proved that Graham wasn't a fraud. 
that he really did have a Nobel Prize winner donating sperm, even if that Nobelist was an abhorrent racist. And it seems that Shockley's views didn't quite bother him, because Graham was also... He, yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a racist. The bank definitely seemed racist, especially when considering that there weren't any known donors of color. But Plot says that race wasn't actually Graham's motivating factor. He was a racist in the way that a lot of people of his time were. He wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't specialize in it. He was mostly an intellectual elitist, and he had very low views of everybody. Graham also instituted other exclusionary practices at the repository. Single women and lesbians were not allowed to get donor sperm. It was reserved for women who were married, and married to a man. Newspapers, columnists, and editorial boards across the country lambasted the repository. But it was Shockley, not Graham, who became the detestable public face of the sperm bank. Talk shows had a field day, and Saturday Night Live even mocked Graham and Shockley. We were talking on the way over, and we thought maybe it'd be nice to have a child with a really great sense of humor. You wouldn't by any chance have any Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, yes, very popular item. Let me see here. But Shockley, the bad press, the mockery, the calls of racism, and the eugenics didn't actually sink the repository. Graham was able to move forward, and prospective parents flocked to the genius sperm bank. Why? One of the great innovations of the repository, probably its greatest innovation, was that it it made going to the sperm bank shopping. And Robert Graham, who has been a great salesman, who's a great salesman above all else, realized, oh, it's not just my job to collect the sperm and distribute it. I have to sell it. Graham was an incredibly wealthy man who had gotten rich through the free market. So he applied his business savvy to his sperm bank, In order to distinguish the repository from AI clinics and sperm banks of the 1970s, he decided to treat this genetic material, sperm, like a product. He marketed the Genius Sperm Bank in the same way that retail giants like Sears marketed their TVs or clothes. He used a catalog. And so he created a catalog with descriptions of the donors. And when women were presented with different descriptions, that high intellectual achievement wasn't the only thing they wanted or the first thing they wanted. They wanted tall. They wanted athletic. They wanted musical. They wanted, you know, a happy temperament before they necessarily wanted just pure analytical brain power. Choice. Robert Graham gave women, gave couples, a choice in who their donor could be with this catalog. He took a medical procedure and help transform it into a home shopping experience. Prospective parents could send away for information and receive a catalog to peruse. What were they looking for in a donor, in their future child? Maybe someone tall with blue eyes who likes gardening? The catalog says this donor would be a good fit. Or no, 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 no. How about someone with thick brown hair who likes chess and piano? Ah, this donor fits the bill. This model put forth by Graham was copied by sperm banks around the world. And it's still the model that's used today. Graham provided that service by offering a menu of donors. But he ran out of Nobel Prize winners pretty quickly. 
and needed to find other men who would turn over their genetic material. I met a bunch of these guys, and and some of them are really quite wonderful. But some of them aren't. (laughs) Perhaps the catalog should have come with a warning. Buyer beware. They were sperm con artists who were interested in spreading their seed across the world and were willing to lie about it to, to get themselves in this bank. Next time on Biohacked Family Secrets, we meet one of the 200 children born from the repository. It's really tragic. I, I wish that he was the type of person that he presented himself to be, but who he pretended to be is too good to be true. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Biohacked Family Secrets is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. Our program is edited by Maureen McMurray. Our producers are Nick Mott, Krista Ripple, Shane McKeon, and Jennifer Siegel. Jenny Kim is our production manager, and Alicia Baitoup composed the theme. Our fact checkers are Will Tavlin and Ava Ahmed Behi. This episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Nuna Sharafadeen, Amy Eason, Jennifer Womack, and Allison Sherry. Have a question or comment about this week's show? Send me a tweet at TJ Raphael or email us at biohacked at 3uncanny4.com. For 3uncanny4 and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm TJ Raphael. <laughs> 